And good evening, everyone. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are on this very, very confused globe tonight. You know, I've often said over the last several years that the stuff that we used to talk about at this time of night, the kind of spooky stuff, the far out stuff, the totally out of the mainstream stuff, well, it was kind of, you know, over the past several decades, safely contained between these hours, between dusk and dawn. I used to call it the magical time. Well, if you haven't noticed, if you look around the planet, um, it's, it's gotten out. It's no longer confined. The world has gone absolutely nuts. And it's like we're living in the twilight zone. And, you know, we will not spend a lot of time kind of reiterating that, but just turn on the news. Just just turn on, you know, CNN or Fox or MSNBC or, you know, the old standbys, CBS, ABC. It's all over. You can't escape it. It's 24-7. The planet has gone nuts. Now, what we're trying to do here is to cast a little light into the darkness. I think that was St. Christopher's motto. And we're, we're going to try tonight to illuminate something of very extraordinary historical importance that may actually be relevant to what is going on now. And as we proceed through the evening and the morning, we will, uh, we will uh, elucidate and provide you with details. I do want to do a couple of news items at the top of the show, which, of course, is what we do. Uh, one of them is very, very sad. A, 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 a megastar, a superstar of the beginning of rock and roll, Little Richard, uh, died just a, a few hours ago. He was 87. He did not die of COVID-19, but um, he, you know, given his extraordinary energy level, he just kind of wore out. He died of, of you know, that classical canard old age. I don't know any more details than that, but what we're going to do tonight is we're going to, I'm, I'm kind of shifting our bumpers. We're going to do a, a medley of the extraordinary songs that made Little Richard the superstar he was, and he had such extraordinary influence. He influenced, at a very fundamental level, the Beatles, um, the Rolling Stones, and God knows how many other mainstream performers over the last Many, many, many decades. He will be missed in all areas. And anyway, without further ado, just kind of listen to why Little Richard will be missed. That real solid man of rock and roll, Little Richard and Long Tall Sally. <laughs> That take me way, 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 way back. Anyway, on a more uh, intriguing and I think profoundly important note, um, did you all see the uh, news item that was released yesterday? I think it was yesterday afternoon. And I'm sorry I can't point you toward the link in Radio with Pictures because we're having a slight technical issue Confia left this afternoon for a field trip with one of her sons, and she called me a couple hours later, and she said, well, you're not going to believe it, but the car broke down. I'm stranded in the middle of a cow pasture. She had a good signal, and um, maybe it was bouncing off a cow. Anyway, 
she warned me that she might not be back for airtime so she could post the things that we normally post before the show. Um, I sent the same links to France, to Richard, uh, Richard, to Robert, um, but it's like um, 6 a.m. there by one of the two time zones that cover France. And I don't know whether he's up or whether he'll see my email. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what I was going to show you. And then sometime in the next three hours when Kinthea finally returns, that is if the uh, AAA arrived and was able to tow them out of the cow pasture, um, we will get it posted. And, of course, it will be posted for Club 19.5. So let me just describe in great old traditional radio fashion, pre-radio with pictures, something really, really bizarre. Yesterday, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, announced, and this was in the Military Times, it was in The Hill, all the mainstream sources one turns to to check out a credible story. The Pentagon announced that it is refusing to accept any applications, any recruits for any of the services, Army, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, whatever. Did I read about the Air Force? Yes, I did. And I would imagine by metonymy, the Space Force, they are not going to accept any recruits who either have COVID-19 or who have had COVID-19 and who have completely recovered. Let me repeat that. The U.S. military has put out a flat ban on anyone who has come near to COVID-19, certainly anyone who has had the disease and even those who have recovered. Now, I did a little checking, and this is unprecedented in U.S. history, in U.S. military history. Never before, during an epidemic or even a pandemic, um, certainly during World War I, when the so-called Spanish flu broke out, has there been a blanket ban on accepting, recruiting, or um, grafting people who might have had a viral disease or a bacterial disease of any kind in the entire history of the United States? Now, remember last Sunday, Joseph and I were talking about some really, really, really far out ideas related to this pandemic, this global Whatever's going on is going on where you can get 195 countries. That's how many independent nations the U.S. State Department officially lists as being out there. 195. Gosh, why does that – 195, why does that sound familiar? Um, I'll uh, think of it. Anyway, why has somehow 195 nations all gotten together and issued so-called – even if they're kind of loose, lockdown orders, social distancing, stay at home, don't go to your job, telecommute, whatever, except for people who can't stay at home and have to meet the public in service industries. Why has the world, as one voice, done this to greater or lesser degrees? And now, on top of it, the U.S. military has said flatly, with no exceptions and no future, well, when we assess the situation and there's more research and we understand the virus and we can physically check out these people who are coming to us to volunteer to join the services and we can find out that they've got a medical clean bill of health, none of that. This is a preemptory, total, 100% ban. Now, for all you folks out there who have been saying, and I've gotten a lot of email, oh, this is just a hoax, this is just overinflated, the CDC is wildly exaggerating the numbers, all of that. I want to ask you to stop and think about the question I have had for weeks, which is, what happens to all the people who get this and then recover? I mean, no one that I have looked at, listened to, none of the pundits, none of the commentators, none of the columnists, none of the politicians, not even the president has ever said, well, we should be kind of wondering about what happens to those people 
who have recovered from this disease and go back to work. Nobody. I've seen no studies into long-term what happens when people get this, go through two weeks of hell, or maybe don't even have any symptoms at all, gets that all over the map, and then are marked as recovered because they have the antibodies in the um, in their blood. So it just seems that um, there's something unusual, and I'm being very conservative here. There's something unusual that the military knows, that the Pentagon knows, that the rest of us don't know. And based on that inside secret, because we don't know it, knowledge, they have now issued this preemptory ban where anyone who has come within five light years of COVID-19 is not fit for duty. Now, of course, the next question is, well, what about all the current U.S. military service members, Army, Navy, Marines, et cetera, et cetera, who have had it and who have recovered, like, for instance, the 1,000 crewmen on the USS Roosevelt, the carrier that is currently docked in Guam, where they were testing all 4,800 crew members and something like a 1,000, about one-fifth, turned out to have the disease and showed no symptoms. Did the military, did the Pentagon, find out something about that laboratory, that floating laboratory, the carrier Roosevelt, and did what they find out so What's the proper term here? Scare them? Terrify them? Warn them? That they have now issued this preemptory ban where nobody who has had COVID-19 and has totally recovered is eligible anymore for the U.S. military service. I mean, this is not trivial. Guys, this is really not trivial. This is so out of the box, it almost approaches, in fact, it does more than approach, what uh, Joseph and I were discussing last weekend, last Sunday. This is a vicious tease. You've got to go and join Club 19.5 so you can listen to what we speculated about, wildly speculated as to the ultimate nature of this pandemic, something that would cause 195 competing at your throat or their throat international nations, separate nations, to all agree, to all agree that this is something so dangerous that they have to essentially quarantine everybody until there is either a vaccine or some other you know, modality that can fix this or at the very least, some kind of therapy which can ameliorate the disease in those people who wind up in the hospital and a lot of those people who are going to die. Because I've been focused on just more than the death count, which is shocking. I've been asking, as you know, what happens to those people who recovered? Well, tonight, the Pentagon has given us one provisional answer. Those people for some reason, are deemed forever unfit for military service. What the hell is really going on? Now, the reason this is relevant to our discussion tonight is because as I've been looking at this, I've decided that it has all the earmarks, COVID-19, of a deliberately genetically created or altered shaped designed um, disease, that this is some kind of weapon. And apparently, at least from the circumstantial evidence, the Pentagon agrees, which of course then raises the question, what's the long-term effect that they do not want anyone who has had this to carry into potential military service. I mean, this is a profound question, which then raises the other question, which is, 
if we're in some kind of unseen war, if the president declaring himself a war president and continually talking about an invisible enemy, an invisible enemy, well, I'm come on, folks. We know viruses are invisible unless you have an electron microscope. Is he really – is this more Dickinsonian speak where the idea of an invisible enemy is really who sent this to us, who designed it, who released it to the world? Is that what that repeated phrase is really trying to say? Again, look at the Pentagon's behavior. Don't look at words. Don't look at music. Don't look at you know, news stories or opinions or pundits. Look at the fact that tonight, if you have had COVID-19, you are axiomatically unfit for duty, as officially declared by the U.S. Department of Defense. This is trying to tell us something absolutely profound. And I'm not going to speculate tonight what it, what it might mean. I will refer you back to some of our discussion on, um, on last Sunday. I will tell you that when I sent Joseph, Joseph Farrell, this news, I sent him a copy of the Military Times, and I said, I don't want to leave the witness, but what do you think is going on? Within 10 minutes, he shot me back an email and he said, the same thing that you do, which is pretty interesting. Now, the connection to 9-11, which is going to be our topic of this evening, is because there is no disagreement that 9-11 was an attack on the United States. There are lots of people questioning who were the attackers, and we're going to get into some of that tonight. The other question, of course, is, well, if COVID-19 is an attack, who are the attackers? And one of my first speculations is, was 9-11 the opening gun in a long, protracted, invisible war? And is COVID-19 the ultimate objective? And again, we don't have enough data to answer that, but we have enough data to begin to ask some very serious questions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to my guest tonight, Dr. Richard Gage, and I'm going to talk about um, I'm going to give him, you know, an appropriate introduction, and then I'm going to ask him to start with forensic evidence, because as you know, on this show, we love evidentiary material. And no matter how far out the theory, if you've got evidence, if you can present a logical, coherent case based on evidence, we will entertain it. So without further ado, Richard Gage uh, American International Institute for Arch um, Architecture, I'll, I'll get that right, is a San Francisco Bay Area architect of 30 years, a member of the American Institute of Architects, and the founder and president of the Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. During his architectural career, Gage has worked on most types of building construction, including numerous fireproofed and steel frame buildings. His most recent project before making uh, the American uh, Engineers for 9-11 Truth, his full-time endeavor, was working on the construction documents for a $400 million mixed-use urban project with 1.2 million square feet of retail, 3,200,000 square feet of mid-rise office space and parking structure, altogether consisting of about 1,200 tons of steel framing. Gage began his quest for the truth about the collapse of the World Trade Center high-rise buildings after hearing on the radio the startling conclusions of a reluctant 9-11 researcher, David Ray Griffin. Since founding AE 9-11 Truth, he has delivered his live multimedia presentations on 9-11 Blueprint for Truth to more than 500 different audiences in roughly um, the same number of foreign countries, and 110 American cities to audiences ranging in size from 100 to over 4,000. And he has appeared in more than 800 radio and television spots, including tonight, The Other Side of Midnight, for at least the second and maybe the third time. Richard Gage, welcome back to The Other Side. Thank you so much, Richard. It's an honor to be on your show, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this evidence with your listeners. Uh, there is a lot to talk about. <laughs> and we only have a couple of hours because you have another commitment, so we're going to lose you at the top of the, se at the third hour. 
However, we're going to bring on uh, Barbara Honiger, who is, of course, one of the preemptive leaders of the uh, 9-11 Truth Movement and member of the Lawyers Committee. I hope I didn't get that wrong. And so we're going to bring her on probably in about an hour, hour and a half um, to kind of segue into some of the areas of speciality that she's been dealing with. But let me start at the very beginning. How does one become an architect with enough background to look at the official story of 9-11 and say, wait a minute, you're not telling the whole story? (laughs) It doesn't take much, Richard. Uh, Anybody who looks at the official story uh, with any degree of of, uh, sincere inquiry will come away uh, very skeptical especially if they start with World Trade Center Building 7. And that becomes so obvious. Most people don't even know there was a third skyscraper that collapsed on 9-11. And they're incredulous when you suggest that that might be the case. I mean, I go all across the country and around the world, um, and – I talked to architects and engineers at conferences and everyone, what? I would have heard about that. <laughs> what? You, you didn't hear about a 14, uh, 47 story skyscraper that collapsed on the afternoon of nine 11 after seven hours after the twin towers. They're in, they're incredulous. See, so I show it to them. See Richard, I have the advantage that I was watching the coverage live. And I saw a BBC reporter, young thing, stand up there and obviously read from a script, you know, because she was literally one of those talking heads. And someone in the control room, uh, control room had obviously given her this script. And she's narrating the fact that Building 7 also had collapsed. And it was like 20 minutes before the building came down. It's standing right there behind her. She's narrating that it had already collapsed and she never turned around and i looked at that and i said what the because that kind of major you know we'll call it a boo-boo on live television from a bbc reporter back in those days was was unheard of it was so unprofessional not to just kind of before you launch into your script to look over your shoulder and say oh it's it's still there (laughs) yeah so they apologize for this grievous error uh, announcing the collapse, the unprecedented collapse of a skyscraper by fire uh, 23 minutes before it actually collapses. They, they, they apologize saying uh, that um, uh, it, it was the confusing events of the day. What does this make them psychic? <laughs> I mean, this is incredible. Well, when you're a field reporter, the first thing they teach you is <clears throat> look around. It's called situational awareness. Yeah. If you're if you're handed a script that says the building has collapsed, wouldn't the natural thing, Richard, be that you turn around and look? Yeah, that would be nice. I mean, we've never had buildings right like behind. this. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously we all saw the the, the the other trade towers collapse. You'd think if you're a reporter and you're do, what, doing what they call a stand-up, that you'd just be curious to see just human curiosity. Well, what does another huge major skyscraper in New York look like when it's a pile of rubble on the ground? And she never even turned around. That was my clue. My first clue, there's something weird about all this, something really weird. So tell us about Building 7. First of all, what was Building 7? Who was in Building 7? And how the hell did it collapse? Because it wasn't hit by any airplanes that I ever saw. Well, this is uh, – it was not hit by an airplane. I think that's probably the most important thing because here uh, <clears throat> is a 47-story skyscraper, uh, part of the World Trade Center complex, 100 yards away from uh, the North Tower. And, you know, it it survived just fine. It, it had some minor damage when the, when the towers came down. Um, but um, – uh, here at 523, uh, after witnesses hear explosions, um, this building, uh, which I'll answer your first question first, it was occupied by 
uh, many uh, large financial companies. But in addition to that, it had the uh, IRS, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the, the, the DOD, uh, the CIA's largest um, uh, undercover oper- not operation, but uh, office outside of Langley. Uh, it, it, it has some very interesting tenets. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission lost thousands of files related to hundreds of very high-profile cases like Enron and WorldCom on the 12th and 13th floor. These are the where, old-fashioned paper files in big metal filing cabinets, right? <laughs> presumably. Because when uh, you say files these days, you know, it can be a digital thing, a terabyte on something you can hold, you know, in the palm of your hand. And that's also in the cloud. Yeah, but that wasn't the, the case back in 2001, apparently, because Enron and WorldCom cases were uh, uh, terminated as a result of the loss of this building. This, these were huge, multi-billion-dollar uh, problems uh, and, and, and cases. Uh, but the, the the largest fires were on the 12th and 13th floor in this building, where the Securities and Exchange Commission was. So it becomes an incredibly complex and fascinating uh, story. Uh, so uh, back to the what what happened. You got witnesses hearing explosions, and then this building at 523 drops like a rock straight down uniformly symmetrically into its own footprint in under seven seconds exactly like the old hotels in las vegas that Mm. we've all seen on tv oh we've all watched these wonderful demolition thingies where you're you're amazed at the precision where they can drop them into what they call their footprint I watched, remember, live, this thing come down 23 minutes after she said it already had come down. And it was, it, it, it was, it was, it was majestic to watch because it looked like an exquisite, perfect, controlled demolition. Oh, it did. And yet NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, who was tasked by Congress to explain all three collapses to us, was juggling this football for seven years, uh, hoping, I think, <laughs> that uh, architects and engineers and others would forget about it uh, because well, they're, they're saying, well, truthfully, we've had trouble getting a handle on Building 7. And indeed, that showed uh, in their final report, uh, which they say, well, this building came down due to normal office fires. Well, no skyscraper has ever collapsed due to office fires, uh, you know, in the history, uh, before 9-11, anyway, uh, of, of office fires. They never brought down uh, a skyscraper. So here's the first example, unprecedented completely, and yet um, the, here's their explanation for it. And they have a, a fairly detailed uh, initiation of collapse theory, which they use computer modeling to try to prove, but the computer modeling completely disproves the, the, uh, their own collapse theory. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and we can walk through that if you want. We have to hold it here for a moment because we are at the uh, bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Richard Gage an eminent architect who has investigated probably more than anyone on the planet the real events of what happened on 9-11. The sad news we had opening of the show, uh, Little Richard has died, so we're going to be doing some bumpers. The Beatles singing one of Little Richard's songs. You're on the other side of midnight. This is in Hamburg, Germany, by the way, in 1962. It's a ragged performance, but it's real. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard Z. Hoagland. We shall return. (laughs) 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. I mean, he was literally one of a kind. You know, the old cliche, they broke the mold. What's really interesting is how much influence he had on the rest of the music industry, the the extraordinary entertainment complex that has grown up over decades and decades and resulted now in all these various forms, media forms, from vinyl records to CDs to, you know, as Richard said a moment ago, the uh, digital media in the cloud that will probably live forever because it's so distributed. He even taught Paul McCartney, it turns out, how to sing. Listen. Okay, back to our guest of the morning, Richard Gage. Richard, I, um, I've been pursuing a rumor for many years now regarding Building 7. Regarding who owned it, you want to talk a little bit about who owned it and then the very controversial quotes that keep running around. And I haven't been able to pin down whether it's just an urban legend or it actually happened and someone recorded it or they overheard it. But the owner, let's start with who owned, um, you know, uh, Building 7. Yes, this is an interesting story because... Uh, Larry Silverstein is a real estate magnate in Manhattan, and he had developed Building 7 in the mid-'80s. It it became part of the World Trade Center complex. And then um, just six weeks prior to 9-11, he acquired full control of the entire World Trade Center complex, uh, investing only $125 million of his own money. It sounds like a lot of money, uh, but it was a $3.2 billion deal uh, that he had uh, scraped together. And uh, all of a sudden, just six weeks prior to 9-11, he owns the whole complex. He puts massive terrorist insurance on the complex, uh, which he walked away with $5.68 billion uh, to – Rebuild. Well, that uh, looks a little suspicious, doesn't it? Well, it, it needs to be looked into. Uh, absolutely. Did, now, the, did, the, line, did the, the formal 9-11 commission, did it ever look at this this uh, arrangement and the so-called coincidences? The They used to talk about windfall profits. This is, this is magnitudes more than any windfall profits I've ever heard of. They did not even mention the third worst structural failure in modern history in the 9-11 Commission report, uh, Building 7. So it wasn't even mentioned. It was like, oh, my God, the collapse of this building. Uh, so No, wait, wait. Uh, the whole building, 47 stories, falls right into its footprint, and it's not even a footnote in the official analysis? It has been wiped from history. We've seen it collapse about two, maybe three times on mainstream media, but it is just not talked about. And most architects or engineers are completely unaware of this again, after the twin towers, the third 
worst structural failure in modern history. Should have been the most studied building. Remember, no plane hit this building. No jet fuel. How did it come down by normal office fires? These fires were few and small, and relatively small, and scattered. And fires have never brought down a skyscraper. So this should well, have been hang on, by hang universities. You say they've never brought down in the subsequent years. It's been like almost 20 years now. 19.5 maybe, anybody? And I've looked at a lot of fires in Buenos Aires, in Madrid, around the world, which have burned for days. And when the burns are out, they stand there as gaunt steel skeletons, but they did not fall. Yeah, there's hundreds of them that have fallen into that category. Um, and and nobody and says, amazing. what the heck is going on? Don't... don't are we all suffering from some kind of cultural amnesia or has everybody been bought or is it that if the government does not sanction the 9-11 report, it's like it never even happened like serve pro. <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't want us to know about it, um, but how do they get everybody to go along? That's what I, cause there was a, there was an engineer out here and I think the university of, uh, of uh, New Mexico mining uh, school, I think, who that very afternoon was talking openly in the media, controlled demolition. And then yeah, his... This is Van Romero ah. from New Mexico Tech. Oh, okay. And uh, he said, oh, it's too methodical to be a, a chance result of, of uh, fires bringing down these towers. There had to be bombs in that building. Uh, and uh, this was very rapidly uh, uh, wiped from the history as well, uh, because uh, apparently because his his university is largely funded by federal contracts mm. uh, for explosives testing. They are experts. But how do you get professional people? Department. Forget the, the the government position. How do you get professional people who are all kind of independent and they're all now connected with social media? Those things we're all carrying around in our hands. How do you get that cultural memory to just disappear like you waved magic wand? Don't people think? Don't they talk? Don't they, you know, have these old water cooler conversations? Don't they send gossip around? Don't they go, what the hell is really happening here? Yeah, th this is uh, an important question and, and one which I think we need to ask ourselves and our audience after we uh, uh, discuss some more of this. Okay, evidence, okay, evidence, evidence. Uh, All right. Because it is so important uh, that people understand the actual facts before we begin speculating uh, about uh, uh, why this is so difficult for people to get their head around. Well, you remember Justice Frankfurter, who was a Supreme Court justice about the Nazi Holocaust, who said that, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said some ideas are too big to be believed is that what we're dealing yeah. with here yeah i imagine so okay and when we ask ourselves that question uh let's try to answer in about an hour and a half <laughs> okay because let's, I'm telling let's, you, let's get back to the evidence because i watched the videos and i saw building seven do something very peculiar you talked about office fires okay i saw the entire facade of that building begin to smoke and vapors kind of exude like it was getting ready for something. And then it collapsed. But there's a continuous well, video record of something happening to that building far and above just a few papers burning in some offices. Well, there were fires in the building. It was full of smoke. So I imagine it is going to smoke. Um, but what we see uh, is a few small scattered office fires. And, and then uh, we have uh, three or four or five witnesses, including videos. Uh, 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 Kevin McPadden, for instance, says, uh, yeah, it was, it was like a, a train running underneath my feet. He was six blocks away. I, I, I knew that was an explosion. And then he says, well, the, the building started to come down. Well, uh, before... Before he says this, he he's listening to a uh, radio held in the hands of a Red Cross worker because uh, they're held back six blocks away from Building 7 because they're told that the building is going to come down. Somehow, 
They know the building is going to come down. Even though it wasn't hit by anything. Yeah. Yeah, they're saying it had structural damage. Okay, well, let's say it had structural damage. But he's listening to this radio, and he hears three, two, and then he says there's a huge explosion. Wait, wait, he hears someone doing a countdown? Yeah, a countdown. Oh. Uh, and, and, and he talks about this. This is all on our, uh, our, our landmark DVD, 9-11 Explosive Evidence Experts Speak Out. And, and then he hears all these explosions. He describes it like a train running underneath my feet. And um, another uh, medical uh, student, Daryl, is interviewed on local 1010 Winds Radio. Know it well. And, ah, and he's um, he, he's saying, and the next thing you know, you hear a clap of a sound like a clap of thunder, a shockwave ripping through the building. He saw, and then he says the building uh, starts coming down. Well, this is incredible. Wait, 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 hang on, hang None on, which... hang on. Was this broadcast live on Winds? No, it's not live. It was later that afternoon. Okay, uh, which means as a witness. which means they had to have a recording. Well, I don't know if when uh, at, at five twenty three when the building actually came down, uh, uh, what they recorded. But his interview was later. Uh, I don't. I don't, don't know how much later, uh, but uh, an hour or so. So there was only his interview. There was no actuality of the sound itself. You're saying. Oh, there are recordings with the sound. That's what I'm looking for. And there's just arguments about whether those are explosions or one floor hitting another because they're they're not looking at the building uh, as it's recording the sound uh, of of the building coming down. There's about 12 video recordings, uh, and there's one, actually, that does have uh, the sounds of explosions. Um, But it's not like the classic explosion like you'd expect – uh, from the loud bang, uh, that uh, audio signature that you'd expect with a normal controlled demolition because something else, uh, as you began to allude to, is going on with regard to Building 7. And that's re- uh, revealed in what uh, uh, FEMA found in their May of 2002 Building Performance Assessment Report. Uh, and that is... Uh, the evidence of hot sulfur corrosion attack on the steel, which is very well documented by FEMA in their Appendix C. It's a metallurgical examination of the steel, liquid molten iron, hot sulfur corrosion attack, silver dollar size holes, the, uh, uh, the evaporating of the ends of the beams says Jonathan Barnett, fire protection engineer and FEMA author. Uh, these, these, this phenomenon does not happen in an office fire. It only happens with extremely high heat. It takes 4,000 degrees to evaporate steel. Well, what's going to do that? These office fires are only five or 600 degrees that we're looking at. Uh, in the videos that show these few small scattered fires. Now, you said a moment ago that in the 20-some years since 9-11, we've had hundreds of steel scraper fires all around the world, right? Yeah. Has anybody done a forensic analysis of their steel beams compared to the World Trade Center steel? Well, um, there has been forensic analysis, undoubtedly, uh, but no... No, uh, no fire uh, has uh, fire when fire gets to be about 1200 degrees Fahrenheit, it, it can begin to weaken the steel. It's about to uh, loses half its strength at that temperature. It's a critical temperature and it can begin to bend. But that's about as hot as office fires can even get. And the, the, the steel can the, the beam under loading can bend, but it doesn't melt. It takes 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit Hmm. to begin to melt steel. And there's all kinds of evidence of melted steel at the World Trade Center. Uh, We cited the Appendix C metallurgical examination that was done on the steel from Building 7. But there's also all of this evidence from 
the U.S. Geological Survey, which in 2005 produced their studies of the steel dust. What do they find in all the World Trade Center dust samples? They find liquid molten iron spheres, previously molten iron spheres. And A, it's molten. That means 2,800 degrees. Fires don't get that hot. Yeah, but wait, wait, wait. If they're, if they're finding little, little, little spheres in the dust, it means the steel not only was molten, it had to be a vapor that then recondensed into these spherical droplets. Let's say it like this. Uh, RJ, uh, excuse me, the USGS says uh, the, these are spherically formed. RJ Lee says another uh, independent analysis of these spheres, which, by the way, they find up to four tons of these spheres. Six uh, percent of these spheres are uh, uh, up to six percent of the samples uh, are these molten iron spheres. It's a huge My amount. God. They're called a signature component, according to the EPA. So how could they have been produced? Well, liquid molten iron, uh, first of all, it doesn't happen in office fires. Mm -hmm. uh, second, uh, molten iron is the byproduct of thermite, an incendiary used by the military to cut through steel like a hot knife through butter. Okay. It doesn't just happen. But if it's going to happen, under explosive conditions, that liquid molten iron is going to be dispersed or aerosolized. As a cloud. As it does, its surface tension forms itself into these tiny spheres almost naked to the human eye. And that's the only explanation that makes any sense whatsoever. And no one spe even speculates as to where these come from. Okay, from hang, on, USGS hang on, hang on. Or I, I have, remember, I have a physics background. I love physics mysteries you know so here's here's my next question has anyone taken and compared the samples from the world trade center towers building seven etc with known destroyed collapsed demolition of steel structures for one side-by-side -side comparison well uh, that's a great question because in a normal controlled demolition you have high-energy explosives like C4 and RDX, which provide very loud bangs and very bright flashes, which is very different than the explosives-type sounds that we have from World Trade Center 7, which don't register on the videos the same way as the old hotels in Las Vegas. Uh, so we're, 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 we're comparing apples and oranges. Controlled demolition? Yes, obviously but different source. We're talking about incendiaries, i.e. thermite, at the World Trade Center Building 7 versus high-energy explosives in uh, every other controlled demolition except mm. one we know of, which is at the World Fair uh, in the, uh, around 1900 or so. They, were, they took down with thermite a, a tower uh, there. So... Uh, it's a great question, and it's a complicated answer. But uh, what we know is that FEMA themselves analyzed the steel from World Trade Center 7, and they come up with the detailed analysis that I provided a summary of that can only uh, uh, account, be accounted for by thermite incendiaries in shaped cutter charges, which, by the way, were patented prior to 9-11, uh, and with devices that issue uh, molten iron cutting through much thicker sections of structural steel in just uh, milliseconds. You see, the steel at World Trade Center 7 was up to four inches thick down low in the building. Right. Uh, the actual slabs of these made-up beams or columns, extraordinary. So I don't think high-energy explosives could have gotten to it. And even if they did, uh, NIST uh, even speculates uh, in their frequently asked questions, very frequently asked about <laughs> controlled demolition, and only answered 10 years after 9-11. Uh, they say, well, gosh, if there was an explosion at World Trade Center 7, it would have produced 130 decibel uh, explosion sound. Well, maybe he's right if it were high-energy explosives. But uh, they wouldn't have wanted that uh, audio and visual signature 
clearly in a deceptive controlled demolition, like obviously Building 7. Well, let's, let's, let's just do hypothetical. You're a SEAL team. You've got thermite. You need to cut through some steel to get to the target. Do you want a very loud bang, or do you want something that's much quieter, much more focused, but will do the job? Obviously, you want the latter. Whoever brought down Building 7 using this technology obviously wanted to be covert, stealthy, and drop it into its own footprint, right? Yep. And that's the only way left, presumably, to do it. Now, there's a downside of using thermite. It would produce uh, elemental iron. We haven't used elemental iron in our skyscrapers since cast iron columns and beams in the early 1900s. Mm, I'm thinking of the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) So you... Yeah, that's an example of elemental iron and cast iron. And you have, so you'd have elemental iron. In B, it would be molten, which makes it 2,800 degrees. So you have incredible heat that you can't account for by normal office fires. And the third problem is you'd have, um, uh, well, they've given us on a silver platter, the uh, analysis by FEMA of the, uh, all of this sulfur. Well, where does sulfur come from? Uh, it's all over the place. They analyze it very carefully. It's invading the ground, ba- the grain boundaries of the of the uh, steel beams and columns. Uh, and the and, and remember, the ends of the beams are partly evaporated. You mean when when you look at the destruction of like an electron microscope, it actually has penetrated the, the crystals of iron, of steel. That's what they they uh, they show this very carefully and documented in Appendix C. Uh, which, by the way, was eliminated from the report after NIST took over the investigation in 2002 that produced their own draft and final reports seven years after 9-11, completely eliminating this metallurgical examination because hmm. it's pointing in the wrong direction. There's no way that fire can account for this or the sulfur involved. Well, where did the sulfur come from? This speculates actually that it came from gypsum wallboard, which has calcium. Oh, my. See, the only iron-sulfur combination I know is around 4,000 miles beneath our feet. It's in the core of the planet. It's in the core of the Earth. It comes up in very strange ways in some volcanoes when it percolates up through the mantle. But it's that primordial composition of iron and sulfur which makes the, uh, shall we say, runny liquid core and creates the magnetic field of the Earth. You don't normally find that in association with any steels on the surface ever. Or in gypsum wallboard. Uh, well, you find sulfur in gypsum. It's been yeah. used to protect steel for 100 years. It's never turned around and attacked <laughs> the steel that it's designed to protect ever. In fact, there's an experiment done by civil engineer John Cole in his backyard where he creates a 2,000-degree fire with you know, incredible fires. And he puts uh, gypsum wallboard all around this steel beam. There's no uh, damage to the steel beam from from that or the fire whatsoever. It takes 2,800 degrees to melt. Well, thermite, uh, you you add sulfur to it, it becomes thermate, becomes much more effective at cutting through steel. So that's the only reasonable explanation for this. And in fact, uh, with, for, for this finding of sulfur invading the grain boundaries of the steel, hot sulfur corrosion attack on the steel, the ends of the beams partly evaporated, which again, it takes 4,000 degrees. Uh, the fires are only 500 degrees or 1,200 degrees. They can get hotter, but you can look at these fires in Building 7, and they are not that hot. You can tell by just looking at them. They're not raging uh, so we haven't. In fact, those fires were out more than an hour before the collapse of this building hmm. uh, on the twelfth floor, uh, which uh, the, which is the floor where NIST says the initiation of collapse occurred, because their whole theory goes like this: uh, that uh, these beams were expanding as a result of thermal expansion, as a result of this fire. 
at the time of the collapse, pushing this girder off of its seat on this column 79, which caused floor 13 to fall on 12, 12 on 10, and so on for nine floors until column 79 is completely unbraced and it buckles and breaks. And then that instability travels all the way up to the east penthouse, which does collapse first. So that's why they focus on this column 79 underneath that east penthouse. And then they say this instability travels across the width of this building in 10 seconds or so. And, and so the interior of the building is completely gutted, they claim. And then the exterior of the building falls like we uh, saw in, in the videos. And I hope you have a link to that so your listeners can go. But if not, just Google uh, Building 7 Collapse and you'll see it coming down, uh, of course, uh, which looks nothing like this collapsed initiation theory of NIST or their computer model, which they spent seven years developing, which still they can't get to look anything like hmm. the collapse of this building. And again, you know, behind this whole conversation, I, I'm thinking of all these professionals, all linked with social media, obviously interested in the most extraordinary building collapse in, in technological civilization and nobody says wait a minute there's something really wrong here well a lot of people are saying that uh, but they're not in positions of authority they're not in the mainstream media they're not in congress uh, they're not uh, the leaders of associations of structural and engineers um, uh, they're people like you and me who care and who have somewhat of a platform to scream uh, from the rooftops. Uh, but yeah, no one in, in, in uh, positions uh, that w would really make the difference are, um, are, are listening. And, and that is a huge question, which we still have to come back to in about an hour. Hmm. Okay. So building seven is owned by a guy named Silverstein who bought, buys it basically for chump change his own investment. It then collapses. He makes an extraordinary fortune. What about this rumor that I've been hearing for 20 years that he said to somebody, pull it. So he's interviewed on PBS's America rebuilds uh, show a year after nine 11. And somebody asked him, uh, well, what about building seven? Uh, and he says, well, um, there's been such terrible loss of life. Uh, I was talking to the fire commander and uh, maybe the smartest thing to do is pull it. And so they gave the order to pull and we watched the building come down. Wow. Think oh, about that for a minute. Uh, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> I'm thinking a lot about that. Right okay. Look, huh? we're, we're at the top of the hour. Uh, hold it there. Um, my guest this morning is Richard Gage, who is a member of AIA Architects uh, extraordinaire. He's been looking at 9-11 almost solely full-time for almost 20 years. And um, mystery only gets more and more profound because, well, things just don't add up. Here's the Beatles again doing Lucille, Little Richard's immortal, one of his immortal songs. Little Richard died in the last few hours, 87, of natural causes. COVID-19 was not involved. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And 
you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.